The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview, just go to VeritasRadio.com. It's very simple. Click on the subscribe button, choose your subscription type, and you'll receive your login immediately, which will give you access to all of our material going back to December of 2008. Wow, I can't believe it's been that long. And tonight we go back to a topic that I really enjoy, the topic of UFOs. Well, conspiracy theories run rampant in the world of the UFO and search for alien life. Some are government-sanctioned, some are government-sponsored, and more than a few can be laid at the feet of UFO witnesses and investigators, whether it's suppressed evidence, hidden plots, cover-ups, or misleading statements. Tonight's special guest will sort through the information, sources, and files to help develop a fuller picture of government activities. You decide if government is being deliberately misleading or whether the conspiracy theories have gotten out of control. All of this with tonight's special guest, retired U.S. Army Colonel Kevin Randall, right now on Veritas. Kevin D. Randall is a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel who toured in both Vietnam and Iraq. He has a master's and doctorate degrees in psychology and a second master's degree in the art of military science. His Army and Air Force training as a helicopter pilot, an intelligence officer, military policeman, and in public affairs brings unique insight into the operations and protocols of the military and its investigations into UFOs and related phenomena. For more than 45 years, he has interviewed hundreds of witnesses to mysterious crashes, sightings, abduction cases, animal mutilations, alien home invasions, and humans working with the aliens. Randall is the author of many books, including the latest, The Government UFO Files, The Conspiracy of Cover-Up. And to learn more about retired U.S. Army Colonel Kevin Randall, we have links to his blog on our website. And directly from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, I would like to welcome Kevin Randall. Hello, Mr. Randall, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Well, thank you very much. You're just assuming I'm in Cedar Rapids. I might have taken my phone somewhere else. Oh, that's right. You may be under a bunker somewhere uh, in Colorado Springs for all we know. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, no, I have, you're right. I'm in Cedar Rapids. I just thought I'd throw you a curve just to start off with. Absolutely. Good to break the ice. And, and, and may I call you Kevin, by the way? 
Yes, you may. Thank you. Was there something you saw right from the beginning? Let me ask you this question. Was there something you saw during your time in the military that compelled you to become an avid researcher on the topic of UFOs? I was a researcher prior to my time in the military. Uh, I always blame my mother for this obsession. Uh, she was a fan of science fiction, you know, alien visitation, sure. uh, interstellar flight, life on other planets. And it's not a large step from that area of science fiction into UFOs, which is, of course, alien visitation and life on other planets. So she kind of uh, spurred the, the interest, but I've been looking at UFOs or studying them since I was a teenager uh, growing up in Colorado. In fact, uh, one of the first things I did, a um, friend, of, friend of mine's mother had seen a UFO, and, and, and this was in the 1960s, which I hesitate to say because that dates me heavily. But uh, <laughs> my question had always been, we'd, we, we'd heard repeatedly through, through the authorities that people just see blobs of light in the sky, they're indistinct things seen in the distance, you really don't get a good look at them, and all of this nonsense. And he told me that his mother had seen this this thing in South Dakota, I believe it was. And so I, I interviewed her, and the one question I wanted answered, and the only thing I really cared about at that time was, was it distinct? Could you see it easily? And she said it was hovering about 200 feet above the barn, and it was a very distinct, solid object, not a blob of light, not a blurry image in the distance, but a, a very distinct, solid object that she got a very good look at. And that kind of I, you know, increased my interest. Now, while I was in the military, I carried out investigations that were not part of my military assignment, but things that I was interested in because of the locales I was in. I took advantage of that to talk to lots of different people about what they had seen and what they had done. So the answer, the answer which was buried in there somewhere was the, uh, the military really had nothing to do with sparking my interest in UFOs. Now, did you ever converge with uh, Sergeant Clifford Stone? Oh, yes. Met him many, many, many times. Uh, met him in 1989 in Roswell, New Mexico, as a matter of fact, and, um, and talked to him about what he knew or may not have known and, and things like that. Uh, uh, as we, and when I say we, Don Schmidt and I were beginning our investigation into the Roswell case, uh, he provided a couple of things that assisted us. One of, one of the things he invited us was an introduction to Ralph Hike, who was a fellow living in Roswell as well, who had... Um, historic done historical research and happened to know the family of Sheriff Wilcox, Wilcox being the Roswell Sheriff in 1947. Right. So we got the introduction to uh, Phyllis McGuire through Ralph Hike. So you know, Cliff Stone introduced us to Ralph Hike, who introduced us to uh, Phyllis McGuire, who introduced us to her sister and her daughter and Talk's daughter. And so we, we got a, a good insight of what the whole family's involvement was in, in Roswell in 1947. You know, when I think of Cliff, and I've had many, many conversations with him in private and, and, and on the record, too, the story about him being taken to what he thinks is Vietnam, where, uh, you know, a, a craft, a, a U.S. airplane was almost put down in the middle of a, a clearing of a forest, and then he found the the but seems to be some great aliens there. I'm sure you know about that story. What's your take on that story? I find it somewhat difficult to believe. Care to comment? Well, I, it, it's uh, some of the things that Cliff has said about his experiences in Vietnam and, uh, and my experiences in Vietnam sort of clash. Uh, I think at one point he claimed about uh, 
he would crawl outside the base camp wire to go hunting Viet Cong at night. And having been in Vietnam, I know that's not simply not true. Uh, anybody crawling around on the wire is going to be engaged, and especially if you're if you're not on a, a authorized mission, you're going to be engaged. The assumption going to be that if you're crawling around in the wire outside the base camp, you're the bad guys. Um, so, you know, I, I find some of him, let, let's just say I find some of his stories overly enthusiastic. I guess the reason why I was asking you is more to see if you know of, of more of the crash retrieval groups that allegedly the United States has, not only in the United States, but in other countries. Do we have... Do we have communication with other countries' governments if, for example, something crashes in Mexico? Do we call the Mexican government and say, hey, we're going to go, or do we just go? I think in today's environment, we would call the Mexican government to, to communicate with them about what we're doing. We don't want to put our soldiers uh, down in a foreign country without the proper diplomatic authorization. Otherwise, we're going to create some kind of international incident, which would tend to draw attention to an event that we wanted to keep secret. But I think based on my research, there's very, very few crashes. There's, um, um, I, I think a lot of things that are labeled as crashes are misidentifications. One of the things that struck me is a number of the illustration I'd seen of people, what they thought was a crash. And as we looked at uh, videos on YouTube, and there's a wonderful one called... Um, Meteor Complimation, uh, uh, which is three minutes and 19 seconds long. And, and so what you see is a whole bunch of meteors that have been caught on videotape as they're, as they're falling. And, and you see as they begin to break up, you get this impression of a lighted co uh, cockpit. You get this impression of lighted windows. And I think that some of the crashes that have been reported, uh, we can now look at as these were meteors, especially when you talk to the witnesses and they say, well, I, I saw it for one or two seconds only. So you don't have a, a time to really get a good look at it. And, and so I think that these, these long lists of crashes, because if there were that many UFO crashes, we'd be having a whole different conversation, which is not to say there aren't, there aren't some, I, but I think there's very few of them. And I think that the way this really shakes out and this is going to sound very American-centric, but I think if you look at it, you've got the one at Roswell, which I think is fairly well established, that, that this, was, this was alien, this was something extraterrestrial. Um, so we've got an answer to the question that everybody else in the world doesn't have in 1947. We've, we've got one. We know what's exactly what's going on. And I think we kept that to ourselves, and I don't think we've had a lot of crashes in other nations because if we did, again, we'd be having a different conversation because those governments would have access to the information. So when we look at it, and, and I've thought about this quite a bit, um, when, we, when we look at it, why, why would all these foreign gov governments being, uh, would, they, would they accept the American um, pronouncement that there's nothing to this and there's no UFOs and that sort of thing? And I think the difference is we have the evidence and the other countries do not have that kind of a, a, a quality of, of evidence. They have the, the eyewitness testimonies, they have the, the radar cases, they have the photographs and that sort of thing, but they don't have the final bit of proof, which would be the recovery of an alien spacecraft or the recovery of alien bodies. And I think that is one of the reasons we can kind of keep the secret, is because 
we control that information. Had that event taken place in Canada or Australia or Japan or Germany or France or Great Britain, then we wouldn't control that information, which which reminds me of the the um, Bentwaters case, Rendlesham Forest. There was there was diplomatic byplay in in, the, in when that that event took place in um, nineteen eighty. There was diplomatic mm-hmm. byplay. The, the the British saying no no we don't they, that's an American problem because it was an American base and it was American personnel. Yeah, but it's and, British and, soil. But and, and and the Americans were saying, but it's British soil. So you guys take it. So there was a, nobody wanted to get involved with it. So they're kind of passing it off to one another because they knew what sort of a diplomatic and public relations nightmare it would become if the information got out, which, of course, it did. And, and so I think we look at all of those sorts of things. It kind of gives us an idea of why the United States has kind of taken the lead on this and other countries haven't, haven't disputed it, although other countries um, you know, France did a wonderful report. Um, the South American countries, especially Brazil, have done wonderful things in their investigations of UFOs. We've got the the, the fellow from Peru, the uh, fighter pilot who attempted to intercept it. I actually got to talk to this guy because the reports would say he fired on it without results, which means he could have missed. So I asked him, did you hit it? And his answer was yes. So he fired on it. He hit it. There were no results uh, because the bullets didn't do anything to to the, the to the UFO. So uh, yeah, we look at all of this. We've got other countries saying, yeah, there's something really going on. We've done done our investigations, but I think they do not have the sort of final evidence that we have in the United States, which is why the United States has been able to kind of control that flow of information. You know, speaking of crashes, I always wondered this: if these craft are coming from so far away, whether you know interdimensional or from a different solar system, how sad would it be to crash when they finally made it here? If they crash, what is it that brings them down? Let's start with Roswell. I think it's uh, it, it's it's the old joke. Maybe they are are built by the lowest bidder. <laughs> uh, I thought that only happened in the United States. Well, that's what I'm saying. Uh, I, I, I think that if you're dealing with a technology, no matter how far advanced, and you're dealing with alien creatures who I assume, and this is my assumption, are somewhat fallible, that somebody could have pushed the wrong button and, and brought it down. But I, 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 you know, I, I just don't – I think it was brought down by accident. I don't think we had anything to do with it. It just, it just came down by accident. But, I've, but I used to say a long time ago, Maybe they did it on purpose. And what is the most non-threatening way to introduce yourselves to another sentient race? Well, you crash one and leave the bodies and the equipment to be found by those alien creatures now running around on this planet. And it, and it, it, it shows, them, shows those, those people that you're not, not that much of a threat, you're not dangerous because um, your craft can crash and your pilots can be killed. Uh, so there's always that possibility, and of course we uh, fooled them by burying the whole incident rather than announcing to the world that that we had um, uh, we had the flying saucer. So I don't know what brings it down. I think that when you look at it, you've crossed these interstellar distances to get here, or these interdimensional distances, which is a whole different argument. But you've you figured out the technology to do this. That your technology is going to be approaching flawless, and so um, it's going to be a very rare event 
that one would crash on the surface of our planet where we could get at it and discover the secrets of it. And I think if you're old enough, you you look back at uh, how well your car worked in the 1960s and the kind of problems you had there, and you look at the car that you buy today and how far superior it is technologically than the cars that we had in the in the 50s and the 60s and all the various components that go into it that make it a much more complex machine than it was there and yeah the things go things go wrong and things break but not with the same sort of regularity that we had you know 50 years ago so i i i look at all of those sorts of things so i you know i'm thinking uh, somebody made a mistake on the craft uh something went wrong and they they didn't recover from it uh, it was something that was unexpected, which happens, you know, when, whenever you have sort of sort of an accident. But it, that that kind of explains the whole thing uh, when you look at it. And then then the question is, well, why didn't they attempt to recover it? And then you have to start. That's a good question. With, well, but you have to start dealing with alien um, thought processes. And it may be that their thought process is, well, it crashed, it's broken, the the, the pilots are dead. Who cares? You know, we don't need to recover that sort of thing. Uh, we don't care if the, the local creatures find it and try to play with it. They're not going to be able to figure it out anyway. It's just one of those things. Or maybe we got to it too quick and there was nothing they could do to recover it. You know, we got there too quickly. We picked up the bodies too quickly. And anything they did from that point was going to reveal themselves in a fashion they didn't want to be revealed. So they just left it alone. Well, you you know, said we, something... don't have those, we don't have those answers. You said something interesting. If they, they, their thought process is, oh, those, those animals who live down there will never be able to figure it out. But did we figure out, if it is true that, that Roswell happened, and maybe we have been able to retrieve technology, you know, advanced technology from off this world, do you think that we have been able to reverse engineer that technology and perhaps we use it today, not only militarily, but, uh, you know, civilian? I don't think so. I think it, I think the technology is so far superior we haven't figured it out yet. And the best example I can think of, and and, and now it now this dates me as well, but it's a much better example, is if you had a a VCR video cassette recorder, and a TV and a power pack, and you go back to Merlin the magician, and you show him this black ribbon, and if you know the secrets, you can get pictures and sound off it color pictures and sound off it. But to do that, you have to understand two things that are invisible, magnetism and electricity. And I think the technology that was presented at Roswell, if it wasn't broken up so bad that it didn't give us any clues, that we haven't been able to figure it out. And when we look at the evolution of what we might think of the important parts of our society, um, micro-miniaturization, uh, the transistors, and all this sort of thing. We can see the evolution through our scientific processes and how these things were brought about. Um, we don't see the quantum leap of, of invention that you would expect if we had successfully reverse-engineered one of these things. And so I, I, I think personally that we, we have it, we have the bodies, um, and the bodies, I would imagine, we subject to various um, examinations as our technology uh, develops. I mean, in the, in the 1980s, we began to develop the DNA technology, so I assume we applied that to them to see what we could learn about the composition of the bodies. But I, I, I think that we just haven't made those kinds of... of um, leaps that you would expect if we'd recovered and back-engineered an alien craft 
which would be far superior to anything that we have. There may be some suggestions, and that we, and one of the things I think of is maybe the composites that was used. You know, we we used to use or think of uh, um, metals as the best way to build aircraft, although they're very heavy. And now we're into these light composites that are stronger and 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 lighter. And that might have been suggested by something that was seen at Roswell. And again, that's pure speculation on my part. I know of nothing that that would really suggest that. But but we do see we do see some of those things, and we do see some evolution. But we don't see the quantum leap that I would expect. The microminiaturization came about because you had to reduce the size of stuff and the weight of stuff when we were launching it into space. And I think that is an outgrowth of the space program as opposed to something that we saw at Roswell. The reason why I mentioned that is uh, because of Colonel Philip Corso's testimony. You know, the alleged uh, technology that he was aware of that was given to the AT&Ts of the world to say they came up with it, when in reality it was given to them coming from extraterrestrials. Do you believe that story? No, because when we look at the evolution of these technologies, we can see where some of it predates the Roswell case. So the... the, the, um, uh, um, Research was being conducted, and and Corso was talking about um, feeding the, the 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 materials into uh, research and development in industry in the 1960s, and and we saw some of this stuff already being developed in the late 1940s, the 1950s, before it would have gotten to industry. And I think when others have looked at the again the evolution of these technologies, we see the elements predating Roswell or predating the time when Corso would have been feeding the materials into industry. So uh, it's very difficult to say, yes, that this story is true. It seems that these technologies that we now live with today were developed by our scientists with very little, if any, sort of clues being, being given to them by what was picked up at Roswell. But if we were able to reverse engineer technology, we made a quantum leap, but then we realized that this could be fracturing the established status quo, if you will, petroleum industry, plastics, uh, you know, the way we conduct business today, it would be a thing of the past. Wouldn't that completely sever the status quo? I, I Again, that's an interesting question. And I know that some economists have suggested that if you even even the benign introduction of certain technologies into a society tend to destroy that society and i know in in earth um uh, history if you look at the um the the superior and by superior i should i qualify it as saying the technologically superior civilizations coming into in contact the right brothers well, the technologically inferior civilizations, right. those, those, those technologically inferior civilizations seem to disappear. Not necessarily through invasion, not necessarily through conquest, but the mere introduction of that technology radically alters that society. We talk about the Plains Indians uh, um, of, the, of the 17th and 18th century, but they were not quite that nomadic prior to the arrival of the Spanish, which introduced the horse into those societies. And so you had an evolution of their society based on a technologically introduction, which was was the horse. Or if you have a, a, a steel or an iron cooking pot, it's much superior to a clay cooking pot. 
and yet the, the technologically inferior civilization is unable to create the iron pot because they, they don't know the processes to get there, but that the introduction of it radically alters their civilization. So you have to look at all of those sorts of things. And so, yes, um, there may have been... Or you could you could postulate that they did figure something out, but they thought that the economic consequences would be such that they were able to suppress the suppress the information. But I suspect that at some point somebody would come in contact with that and figure out a way to to introduce it so that they be, could could become rich. You know, you've got to keep you suddenly have got to reduce the number of people engaged in research and development for fear of somebody trying to steal one of the inventions and and making it their own. And then how do you how do you prosecute that guy? Well, he stole it from us, and we got it from a flying saucer. You know, so you've got to be very careful on that sort of thing. And I I don't see the sort of things you would expect if we had figured this stuff out. If we'd figured this stuff out, I think that sort of thing would would leak into society in some fashion. And if Corso was right, he was actually seeding that sort of introduction of materials into society. And we just do not see that sort of thing um, when we look at the history of all this stuff. So you've, you've got to look at the economic history and the uh, you've got to look at the sociological history and the psychological history and the anthropological history of all of these things to see what you can make of it. But what about uh, zero-point energy over unity devices, uh, perpetual motion machines, which I, I hear it's illegal to request a patent because it goes against national security. If these are all technologies that were man-made, imagine if we are able to capture technology and understand it. By Let's say we have an alien race that has been studying us for eons and we're able to communicate with them Ali Eisenhower, and we'll discuss the Eisenhower meeting in a few minutes. Do you think the Eisenhower meeting occurred and that we had an agreement with them, as many speculate? It's, we've, we're taking, we're take, the, the, the thing that scares me here now is we're, we're going into areas where I'm going to say I don't accept this and people are going to get mad at me because I'm stomping on um, some of their belief structure. You know, this And I appreciate my, that, by the way. I appreciate your level of skepticism. I always... Tell people you have to be skeptical. Keep an open mind, but be skeptical. Accept evidence, but change it as as they, as they come. Yeah, well, that that that's exactly right. You have to go where the evidence takes you, and and too often people don't want to go in those directions. Uh, my PhD thesis was on how belief stu- structure influenced the identification of an ambiguous stimuli, which means if you see a light in the sky, does your belief structure help you identify it? In other words, if you believe in flying saucers, you identify it as a flying saucer, you're suddenly happy. If you are very religious, you identify it as a ghost or yes. an angel. Right. And that's where your identification takes you. And, and, and your belief structures influence the, the, those investigations. So when we when we look at testimony, we have to say, okay, did the guy get a chance to look at it long enough? Did he get a good enough look at it? Is there supporting evidence that he saw something uh, tangible, something real, as opposed to a natural phenomenon or a man-made object that, that appeared unusual to him? So you've got to take a look at all of those things, and you've got to go where the evidence leads you. And and um, and we, we get we get into these these um, sort of these knife fights with one another about what our belief structure tells us. And, I, you know, I try to look at it. This is what the evidence tells me. And, and if 
better evidence is presented, then I'm willing to change my opinion and where I am simply because the evidence has taken me in that direction. I'm not going to be the Catholic Church refusing to look through Galileo's telescope or that sort of thing. I'm going to take the damn look for the telescope and see what I can go. see. And, well, and, and that's where we have to go. But we've got to look at all of this stuff. And, and, and when you talk, to some, talk about some of these people and what they've said and what they've seen, you have to say, what is the evidence? Can they support that evidence? And there are ways to check that out. I mean, uh, I want to hesitate to do this, but it, but but I'll I'll just I'll commit ufological suicide here right now <laughs> uh, on your show. Uh, there's a case the, the case of the crash in Del Rio, Texas, with Robert Willingham, claiming that he was a fighter pilot in the 19 well originally in the 1940s, and he he chased uh, a UFO. It had crashed just over the border in Mexico. He was. He went back to his home base, got a, a, a small private plane, flew down there, landed, saw the crash, saw a body or two, and and uh, and left. And I said, okay, that's good. A lot of people believe that, me included, uh, you know, because it's Colonel Robert B. Williamham, retired Air Force officer. And as I was putting together, actually, crash when UFOs fall from the sky, as opposed to U- uh, government UFO files. I thought, well, let's see what's new in the Willingham story, and I looked it up on the Internet, and suddenly the, the event took place in the 1950s, and it's in a different location. And I said, well, this doesn't make any sense to me. So I tried to find the original story as it was reported, and it was, it was supposedly reported in one of those little shopper newspapers in the Harrisburg area, and I, I uh, asked some friends if they knew anybody in that area, um, move on investigators who could help out, and, and, and they had tried to find the, the newspaper I tried to find the original story. I um, I called a couple of these newspapers in existence to see if we could trace their history and maybe find this original story. I actually did find it finally, and it turned out it was in in Skylook magazine, which is Mufon's, uh, which was the original Mufon journal. It, it, it appeared in March of 1968, and it talked about Willingham in in the in the crash in 1948. So I had the story as he told it in the late 1960s. I had it documented in that, and so I could see the evolution of his story. So I thought, okay, military records can be checked. They are all on file in St. Louis. Yes, there was a big fire that destroyed some of the records, but there were other ways of of, uh, recreating the records. So there's very few records that were completely and totally lost. So I wrote to him and I asked about this Willingham guy, and there was nothing in the uh, St. Louis files that suggested he'd been an officer in the Air Force or a fighter pilot. What it did tell me was he had been a low-ranking enlisted man who joined the Army in December of 1945, which technically made him a veteran of World War II, and that he'd got out, gotten out in January of 1947. Nothing else. He'd been in the Civil Air Patrol, which is an Air Force Auxiliary, but it's a civilian organization. You don't re- earn retirement points for being in it. You do not get paid. You wear a modified Air Force uniform. But it's a it's a civilian organization. It's a search and rescue organization with a with a mission of teaching uh, teenagers about aviation. There's a cadet program and all of this stuff that goes along with it. But he and he he made it to lieutenant colonel in that organization. Nothing in the military records suggested that he'd been a fighter pilot or a military officer. Um, and and so what do you do with that story now? Here's Willingham telling this story. And it's a wonderful story, and we'd all like to believe it. And in fact, many of us did. If you go back to my book, um, History of UFO Crashes, the original affidavit that he gave in um, 
1977, I believe it was, to Todd Zeckel is in there. And, and we believe this story because he's a retired Air Force colonel. And it turns out he's not. He was an uh, enlisted man who'd been in the Civil Air Patrol. And, 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 and we found the original story from 1948 when he talked about it happening in 1948. Then the second story where it happened in 1950. And the third story where it happened in 1954 and 1955. Well, what do you, what do you believe there? Where, where do you take that sort of thing? I have to reject the story because there is no other information about it that you can find, no independent sources of information. There's no newspaper clippings. If you take a look at Roswell, let us say that one of the Roswell witnesses lied to us. I don't know, say Frank Kaufman. And we, we check Frank Kaufman out and we find out that what he tells us isn't true. Do we reject the Roswell case because of that? Well, if Frank Kaufman was the only one telling the story, yeah, we would. But we have the newspaper articles. We have the FBI document. We have the testimony of literally dozens of people who were involved in some fashion. When you look at the Willingham Del Rio case, there are no newspaper clippings. There are no documents. There are no corroborating witnesses. The only names he gave us were names of people who were conveniently dead uh, after after he started talking about his story. So what do you do with that story? Do you believe Willingham or do you reject it? I have to reject it. When we when we get to Roswell, if we look at Kaufman and we find out he's not telling the truth, do we reject the Roswell case? Well, no, we have all these other things aligned with it. So we've got to look at that whole sort of picture. But But the point really is we've got a lot of guys coming forward claiming they were military officers and they did this and they did that or military personnel, and we can check their records. You mentioned Cliff Stone. Cliff Stone said that he had uh, retired as a sergeant first class after 22 or 23 years in the military. We get his records and we find out that Cliff Stone was a retired sergeant first class who um, retired after 22 years in the military. He had, um, I think, think he spent three years in Vietnam according to his record. So, I mean, he's got like three tours in Vietnam. So then you look at other aspects of his, of his tale, but you find things. He's not presenting himself as an officer. He's not presenting himself as, as anything other than what he was militarily. And we can corroborate those parts of his story. Well, that makes him a more credible source than, say, Kaufman or Willingham, simply because when we check the, everybody out, you know, we find out that Kaufman wasn't who he claimed he was militarily. We, we got his records as well. Uh, Willingham wasn't who he claimed to be, who he was militarily, but Cliff Stone was who he claimed to be militarily. Well, I think this is important. I mean, it, this is, to me, common sense. That's why the motto of this program is, I don't want to believe, I want to know. And sometimes people say, Mel, you're becoming too skeptical. Not, not true. I am open-minded, but you have to give me evidence so I can go with it. I don't go for speculation. And let's say... The Billy Meyer case is an example. He may have been telling the truth at, at the beginning, but I've seen some of his pictures, some of his photographs, and some of them have been, have been proven to be a hoax. And that's here's one person without witnesses, one person talking about all of this. If one single photograph can be put into question, then I put the entire story into question. What say you about that? I think you know. there's another aspect of the Willingham case that fits into this really well. Willingham talked about the Del Rio case, and you think, okay, you know, somebody could have blundered onto this, but but Willingham began to expand it. He now was was at seven different UFO crashes, and in one case, he talked about how he's driving down the back roads of Pennsylvania, and this farmer stopped him, 
And uh, they went over the top of the hill, and there was a crashed flying saucer. What are the odds? Nobody in driving around the back roads of Iowa has ever stopped me to take me over to show me a UFO crash. Um, no matter how, how much time I spend driving the back roads, it has not happened. So they began to, establish, to, to change and embellish the story. So you have to look, is there a core of truth to what they say? And, I, and, and with Willingham, I don't believe there's a core of truth. But, but you have to look at the, the, the core uh, uh, of that. Everything that Willingham said about his military background was false. And you have to say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm out of there. On other cases, you look at some of it, and you, and you can see, well, the story is expanding. It's getting better and better as the person talks about it. Is that a factor of them becoming more comfortable you, with you as, a, as, a, as an investigator and, a, and an interviewer? Or are they making up stuff to keep the story going and their, and their names in the spotlight? And so you've got to look at those sorts of things. I've always kind of used a philosophy, you know, what... What do we think, what do we know, and what can we prove? And what we think and what we can prove are two different fish, and what we can prove is a much, much smaller fish than what we, what we think. And, you know, we can think, well, the, the UFOs are alien, and, and can we prove that? I think we can based on the evidence, but the proof is uh, not as spectacular as some people would like it to, believe, to be. You know, I heard one of your interviews recently where a caller told you, well, Mr. Randall, I believe all these extraterrestrials are demonic entities or, or people who say we're alone in the universe. And I always say yeah, the most common elements in intelligent beings are hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen. And the most common elements in the universe are hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen. And there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in the, in the known universe. Each contains hundreds of billions of stars. Do you think intelligence only happened once? Uh, no, I, clearly I don't. I, I think we've been visited. And, and, and the question I have, you know, I, I, I believe is that, that whoever is visiting is from our own galaxy and probably close to our own galactic neighborhood. Because when you start looking at other galaxies, uh, the Andromeda galaxy, I think, is the closest galaxy to, to ours, and it's like, 2.2 million light years away, which means the light from that galaxy left it 2.2 million years ago. And can you travel that kind of a vast distance? You know, I, I, I can see us being able to travel the interstellar distances in our, in our galactic neighborhood because they're not quite that fantastic. But then the next question is, if you can travel an interstellar distance of 10 light years or 20 light years, maybe you can also span uh, 2.2 million light years or whatever it is. So once you've solved that, that problem of interstellar flight, it might open up the entire universe to you. But I, I, you know, based on my thought process is that uh, whoever they are, they came from our galactic neighborhood as opposed to one of those other galaxies. But, when, but as you say, when you look at the size of our galaxy, what's 110,000 light years across and 30,000 light years deep, and you're looking at star systems that when we've identified the ones with planets, they've, they've always had multiple planets. Uh, you've got to believe that life exists on some of those other worlds and that someone who, or a society who has been around longer than we have has been able to defeat the problem of interstellar flight. I mean, 100, I don't want to 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 
Um, the fastest you could move was probably a train at 60 miles an hour, but most people were on horseback. And now we can move around the world, well, 90 minutes if you're in a spacecraft, but, I mean, aircraft take you around the world in incredibly short times. And I communicate with people all over the world through the Internet in a matter of seconds. You know, I, you know I, and I'm sure everybody's like this. You know, you send an email to somebody and you expect an instant response no matter how far away they are. Of course, you have to kind of look at the time differences. But, but I mean, even, even 50 years ago, if you sent a, a letter to somebody, you could expect a response in, what, a week, 10 days, two weeks? You know, if they got right back to you on something like that. And today, you know, send an email and you expect an instant response or an instant or, or, or you know, you're using you, – um, you're texting somebody, you expect an instant response. And it doesn't matter where they are in the world. Uh, you can text somebody in Europe or Asia or Australia. I don't know about Antarctica. I don't know if they have <laughs> good cell towers there. But, <laughs> but, but, I mean, the point simply is you look at the, the, the growth of our technology and our society uh, in the last hundred years as opposed to where it was uh, a thousand years ago or 150 years ago. And then you think, okay, what's it going to be like in another hundred years or a thousand years or 10,000 years, what are we going to be able to do then that uh, we don't even dream about today? Well, I'm glad you're talking about those possibilities because saying that it has to be from another, from our own galaxy is just staying within conventional wisdom. You're right. 2.2 million light years, you know, for the conventional mind, it's impossible. But say, you know, 100, 200 years ago, if I, you and I had a bicycle and you lived in Florida and I lived in California and I said, I'm going to go visit you, it would take me months to get there. That was our conventional wisdom. So isn't well, I, it? But, 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 but I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go visit you on a bicycle. I'd get on the train, <laughs> which would probably take a week. Well, say 300 years ago, 400 years ago, you know what I mean. Yes, absolutely. To get uh, 200 years ago, most people died within 25 miles of where they were born, and they never got beyond that point because it was such an ordeal to get beyond that point. My point point is about time and space, bending time and space. Yes, we can. We we get we get around much much faster. And, and like I said, my mind limits me to our galactic neighborhood. Exactly. Simply because of the distances when we move to farther galaxies. But but as I say, that might not just really be the problem at all. And it might be. You know, it's it's sometimes easier in the United States to get from uh, New York to California than it is to get from Iowa to California, even though it's closer because of all the all the permutations of how you get to California. Uh, I know that I was I was asked to be on a TV show out in in Los Angeles, and um, to get there I had to fly from Cedar Rapids to um, Cincinnati to hit the hub. So I had to fly fly 90 minutes in the wrong direction to get to L.A. Yeah. And then I had to you know flight 90 minutes later I'm now back to where I spot, I started. I spent three hours on an airplane. I'm back to where I started to get to L.A. But if I was in California or in, in New York, I could have gotten there a lot faster and a lot easier on a direct flight. So, so yeah, I mean, it, 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 we don't know. It, it might be easier to travel further distances than shorter ones because of the way time and space is looped and twisted when you, when you manipulate it. I, I just really don't know. If I had the answer to that, I'd be really, really wealthy, and <laughs> right. I wouldn't talk to anybody. Now, you mentioned jokingly Antarctica. I have a posted a, a postcard uh, that I inherited when I made a purchase a few years ago of uh, this elderly couple that had this collection of, of uh, UFO books in. I have newspapers from the 50s, 60s, 70s. Now, one of these days, I'm going to start posting a lot of these things that we hardly see these days 
in the newspaper unless you go to the National Enquirer. But these were serious stuff on, on cover pages. But anyway, they had a, a, uh, a postcard from Antarctica dated the 1930s with a postage, postage stamp saying Little America. Now, the story of Admiral Byrd, do you believe that story? That he flew into the middle of the earth? Not flew the middle of the earth. I wouldn't take it so far. As a matter of fact, I don't take it that far. But the expedition of going down there, staying for two weeks as opposed to two months and returning because they get their butts kicked, if you will. No, I don't. I don't think. I don't think so. Um, I know one of the proponents of that was a guy named Harley Bird. Once again, we, we can check that out. Russ Estes, uh, who was a good friend of mine, he passed away a number of years ago had done a, a video interview with Harley Bird, who claimed originally to be a nephew of, of uh, Admiral Bird, and then graduated or was promoted to, to uh, grandson of Admiral Bird. And Estes did a interview with him and listened to what Harley Bird had to say about all of this sort of stuff, and then checked all the lineages out and, and uh, those sorts of things and found you know, point after point where Harley Bird was making up that. And then Harley Bird got mad and he was going to sue him for this, that, and the other thing. And Russ's attitude was, yeah, anytime you feel froggy, um, go ahead, sue away. But um, I, I, I don't, I just, that, that sort of stuff without additional evidence, without a corroborative testimony. I mean, we could, we, could, we could go to, what about George Adamski and George Van Tassel? I actually saw George Van Tassel lecture in Denver once when I was a teenager. Um, and 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 actually, if if you go to the um, government UFO files, you know where the FBI says, well, we didn't, we don't do a UFO uh, investigations. There was actually a document from a FBI agent who attended, and I think it was Van Tass, one of Van Tassel's lectures that happened to be in Denver, and was in in like 1960 was talking about what he'd seen there and who was there and what went on there. So I mean, the the government was looking at this stuff. Um, with enough interest to have an FBI agent uh, report to Hoover about what he had seen, but uh, without the corroborative testimonies, and that's where we, you know, we've got to look at the corroborative testimonies. Is there additional information to suggest that? Not just one guy saying it. Uh, is there really something that we can document? And that's, I think, that's where in UFO research we fall down a lot, and, and we can look at it the other side of the coin too. Is the, you know, the, the Air Force said. Uh, something about a, a specific case. Well, you get into that specific case. Uh, a good example is the um, Rhodes photographs from July of 1947. A guy living in um, Phoenix, Arizona, took two pictures of a flying saucer or a UFO that looks an awful lot like um, Kenneth Arnold's original drawing. You know, Arnold eventually came in a very stylized crescent shape thing, but his original drawing wasn't quite that that unique but the thing that Rhodes photographed looked an awful lot like the the drawing the original drawing that that Arnold had made and the Air Force went out of its way to smear this guy you know they said well you can't believe him because he he has the letterhead paper with this with this um, um, panoramic research labs as the letterhead and he's the director of research and he's got this massive ego and he's a third-rate musician and he lives off the the money his wife makes as a as a school teacher yeah, well, this guy's a crackpot. We don't need to pay any attention to his pictures. But then you discover that at the beginning of World War II, he worked for the Navy, and the Navy had decided that there were they didn't have enough uh, engineers uh, and scientists working for them. So what they did was design a series of tests. 
And if you did well enough on the test, they gave you the equivalency of a, of a master's degree. If you did better, you got the equivalency of a PhD. So they could talk about these high-level, highly trained people working uh, on their projects. And, and Rhodes was given the equivalency of a PhD. Then you find out that Rhodes also had a number of patents. He wasn't a crackpot with, with these grandiose ideas. He was a serious engineer, a serious scientist, and he held a, a, quite a few patents that were paying him royalties. In 1955, uh, and I forget the guy's name, he was with the Kitt Peak Observatory at the University of Arizona, um, asked Rhodes to help him design some very specific equipment for uh, the Kitt Peak Observatory, which Rhodes did. And, and he would have been on the faculty of, of the um, University of Arizona, I think it was, <laughs> had, had Rhodes' personality not been quite as abrasive as it was. He wanted them to do things that they weren't willing to do. Um, you know, they were sort of predicting their, their academic ballywick, if you will. They wanted him to do some things to move into that arena, and he thought he'd already proven himself enough that he didn't have to do it. So you've got the government, the Air Force, smearing this guy's name, saying, well, he's a crackpot, and blah, blah, blah. And when you look at the guy, you find out, well, he's really not a crackpot. He was a legitimate inventor. You could have said the same thing about Thomas Edison. <laughs> the guy didn't go to college. <laughs> you know, doesn't have a real job. Or Tesla. Uh, Tesla's an even better example, because That's look right. at how they smeared him. Uh, and and, and uh, a, a wonderful, um, brilliant man. Uh, so so you, you, know, you look at all of that sort of thing, and you can see how the government has attempted to smear people's names. Uh, so, you know, it's the other side of the coin, the government actively attempting to stop research into UFOs. And you look at the uh, Condon Committee, the University of Colorado study in the 1960s, where they were going to decide whether there's anything to UFOs, and you find the documentation from the Air Force to the to Condon saying, this is what we want you to do, which is uh, end Project Blue Book, say nice things about the Air Force, and say it doesn't doesn't affect national security, and, 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 and there's nothing to it. And Condon writes back and says, yeah, I got that. And so what happens when the report comes out? And we say, well, here's a scientific study on UFOs, and it's not. It's a whitewash to end Project Blue Book. But, but, but the scientists and everybody holds it up and says, see, there was a scientific study and there's nothing to UFOs. 30% of their cases weren't, weren't solved and won. The solution was, and I love this solution, was it was a natural phenomenon so rare it had never been, been seen before or since. Well, excuse me, if you've discovered a natural phenomenon that rare, don't you think it deserves further scientific research rather than just forget about it? So the, the conclusions were written before the research was even done. So we look at the whole UFO phenomenon, and we can see that sort of thing, and yet that doesn't get a good play. And that was one of the points of the government UFO files, was to bring the documentation out and say, here's what the documents actually say, as opposed to what they told us they said. And you mentioned George Van Tassel, which is the, the 1953 story of, of this uh, aircraft mechanic who supposedly had communication with Venusians. Now, no, I think no, I think Van Tassel was Van Tassel was Martians. It was Adamski who were the Venusians. Exactly. I'm sorry. Right. Well, either way, <laughs> either way, if you have so, if you're making that extraordinary claim, how do you come forward with extraordinary evidence? You've got to have something to to prove it. And 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 with the contactees, Van Tassel and Adamski, and I think almost everybody in the UFO community, with a few exceptions, believe the contactees were making it up. 
uh, as they went along. And, and it was interesting, they never attacked one another, which we, we do all the time in the UFO community, but the, but the contactees never, never attacked one, one another directly. They would say, Van Tassel would say things, well, you really can't believe what the Venusians are telling you. And, and, and Damsky would say, well, you can't really believe those Martians, you know, because they're a little bit of con men. <laughs> and so it's a very, very subtle way of, of warning you off against the other guy without saying, well, this guy's a nut. Because, because I mean, Adamski knew he was making it up, and Van Tassel knew he was making it up, and if they accused the other guy of making it up, well, then the, the allegations just snowballed from there. So they had this tacit, sort of tacit agreement, we won't attack one another personally, we'll just, you know, say our, our sources are better than your sources. <laughs> You know, I'm thinking, I'm jumping around, and not a lot of the stuff is probably outside of, of your book, but I know that you're so versed in all of these areas. I'm very curious. I'm thinking of Paul Benowitz. You knew the story of Paul Benowitz? Yes, yes. Now, what's your take on him? I have two handwritten letters off him discussing some, some, some cases. What's your take on Benowitz? Well, the only thing I'll say, uh, Benowitz did not have a Ph.D., which... Uh, but if you go back and you and, and, and some of this I think is is in um, the government UFO files. There's a, a letter from uh, the OSI, OSI, I think it's the OSI at Kirtland Air Force Base, you know, addressing him as Dr. Benowitz repeatedly. So they, I mean, they respected him as a scientist, and I think that um, you know he was he was doing um, scientific research and he got involved in something that. Um, uh, may not have been alien, but certainly brought him to the attention of people who didn't like the, where his research was going. And there was an active uh, attempt to smear him and uh, discredit him. Yeah, but but Benowitz, Benowitz may have may have stumbled on to secret communications out of the um, what Manzano uh, research areas in, in near Albuquerque. That, that were terrestrially based as opposed to extraterrestrial. But, I mean, the guy, the guy was driven nuts by uh, um, the stuff that was being given to him um, by certain individuals. So He became you know, very so, paranoid. Yeah, and, and, and given the, what he was being told and the things he was doing and what was going on around him, uh, I, was it Bill Moore who... Did Bill Moore actually say that they had broken into Benowitz's house and rearranged his furniture and things like that, or was that an accusation slung at more by somebody? I heard the story. He had Thunder Scientific Laboratory. I have his yes, business yes. card right here. Yes. I, and on the other side of the coin, there's a guy named uh, Littell who lived in Albuquerque. Uh, not Littell. Um, shoot. Um, had uh, diversified communications. Um which is also another private lab in 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 Albuquerque, um, Chester Lytle, Chester Lytle, who 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 knew Blanchard, who was the commander at Roswell in 1947, very very well, and and Blanchard and he had some discussions about what had crashed there, which got very interesting. But here's another guy, like Benowitz, a private citizen who had done work for the government, who was very highly respected. Uh, Lytle didn't um, wasn't targeted the way that um, Benowitz was, but but Lytle told us some very interesting things. Told Robert Hastings some very interesting things. So you know, I think of Benowitz, I think of Lytle. They're the same, you know, the same ilk. Uh, uh, very very bright men uh, who did a lot of very very good work 
um, during their careers. Uh, some of it related to the government and things they did. Uh, the story I've been told, and I'm not sure that, that Lytle, for example, helped develop the atomic trigger for the atomic bombs, the trigger for the atomic bombs. And Lytle, Lytle told Robert Hastings, and, and Lytle had told us similar things. And by us, again, I, you know, I'm thinking of Don Schmidt and then later Schmidt and Tom Carey as well, about... Um, the crash at Roswell. I think that Blanchard finally told Lytle that there had been four bodies recovered, and so here you've got a guy. There's there's no, there's no point in Lytle making this stuff up, you know, um, at at all. There's no reason for it, and you know it involves Blanchard in 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 all of that sort of thing. So you know, I I, I tend to accept that. So you know, you've got the same thing with Benowitz. I'm not sure that Benowitz was directly um, involved with alien technology or or extraterrestrial technology it may have been more terrestrially based but they led him in that direction as a way of of feeding his paranoia so he was another guy who was kind of manipulated by the government or the uh, AFOSI um to to get him off the research direction he was taking you know when i think of uh mysterious deaths not that his was a mysterious death although i think that he was driven crazy by the paranoia that it was in, inflicted upon him. I think of Secretary... Or they, or they, or they, or they took his paranoia that, that, that wasn't all that crippling and created a situation where it became crippling. Precisely, it precisely. Manipulated the situation to, to uh, discredit Benowitz and get him out of the picture. Exactly. But I'm thinking of uh, Secretary James Forrestal. What's your take on his... Boy, I don't know. That, that one I go back and forth on, I don't know. I mean... Um, you know, you look at you look at the history of the guy, and what he was involved in. Devout Catholic. Think, you know, and you think, well, yeah, and you think, well, you know, maybe all of that was so much that he jumped out of the window, and then you, and then as you point out, a devout Catholic, and you think, would a, well, Catholics do commit suicide, but would he have, would he have committed suicide, or was he tossed out the window? What did he know? What could he possibly have known that would have driven him to that, or what what? Did somebody think he knew that drove him to that? I, I just, I really don't know on that one. You know, I go back and forth on that one. Have you heard of the, the alleged uh, testimony from, I think it was his brother, who was the one who came after he was told of what happened, and one of the the orderlies of the hospital bumped into him and said he did not commit suicide. Have you heard that story? Yeah, and but, you know, there, but I, I think you framed it right when you said story, you know, um, Unless we know who the orderly was and we could get corroboration for it, you know, that, that's really all it is, right? It, it, and there's nothing we can do about it at this point. may be completely accurate, but we just do not have the evidence we need to, to corroborate those things. And that's the thing we run into in, in, in UFOs quite a bit is, um, you know, you're looking for the evidence. What does the evidence tell you? And I think if you go through the Project Blue Book files, and you read the case studies and how they, they did it, you see the manipulation of the information. And so you wonder how much of the information has been manipulated over the years. I mean, we look at it this all the time. We see this all the time, the government conducting experiments that are just, just horrendous. You can't believe they would do things. You know, the, the um, uh, Tunguski experiment where they Tuskegee. decided... Tuskegee. Yes, where they, where they, where they uh, decided not to treat... The syphilis that the guys had, the, the black men had, the African-Americans had, they wanted to see how the disease progressed. So they didn't give them medicine. They told them they were being treated so they could monitor the progress of the disease. 
or there was a, an experiment in Washington, D.C., not Washington, D.C. Washington, and by the way, that was, that was 40 years from 1932 to 1972. Yeah, yeah and, 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 and I mean, what a horrendous thing to do. And then there, there was a, a thing out in Washington where they were irradiating children who were of below average intelligence or had, had birth defects to see what the effects of the radiation was on mm-hmm. them. I mean, they're just, who would think to do this? Uh, you know, it's, it's just incredible. So you look at all of that sort of thing, and then you say, what else is the government kept from us? And you look at the UFO stuff, and, 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 and you, you can look at where, where they've just flat out lied to us uh, about something. Uh, oh, 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 the best, Portage County, which is, I always think of the close encounter chase, which I think is in government UFO secrets as well. Um, but they're, they're, you know, they're chasing the UFO from uh, Pennsylvania, uh, no, um, Ohio into Pennsylvania, you know, the police cars, and they see the object and all of this, and they say, and, and the explanation is, well, it was a satellite and then Venus. And you go back and you look at the case file, and you see in the case file, it says it can't be a satellite because the satellite, and there were two different satellites that they thought it might have been. They knew exactly where they were, where the guy saw the satellites in the western sky as opposed to the eastern sky where Venus was. And they couldn't possibly have been satellites. So you've got the government writing off, well, this is a satellite in Venus. Well, no, it's not a satellite because the satellites were not visible to those guys at that time in that location. So they spotted something in the west. They chased it to the east. And in one of the drawings, the guy, the guy shows the moon, shows Venus, and the object. Well, clearly they saw Venus, and they knew what it was. So there's something else going on. Yet the government just wrote it off as a satellite in Venus. And you can look at those sorts of things. Uh, through the case files over and over again. When you go in and you read the documentation that was collected, you find the contradictions that, that tell you the solutions they're, being, they're, they're, they're talking about are simply untrue. You know, when I think of a Blue Book, I think of Edward de Ruppelt, and this is one thing I didn't know, and I have his three books, the three versions of his book, uh, the report uh, on unidentified flying objects. I didn't know until recently that he had died at the age of 37 from a heart attack. Now, isn't this strange? Um, given the time frame, 1960, where everybody smoked and drank and all that stuff, mm. it's not as, you know, people, the young people die of heart attacks all the time. I, you know, that's, that's interesting. I'm not sure it's relevant. Um, what, if I was Rupelt, though, I would have been really hosed at one point. I'm recalled, I, I, I'm a, I've been a, a flyer in World War II. I've received two Distinguished Flying Crosses. I'm recalled to active duty for the Korean War, and I'm handed the UFO project. Now, if I'm recalled, I want to get into the conflict. I don't want to hang around in Ohio looking at flying saucer stories. I would have been hosed about that, but apparently Ruppelt um, uh, brought his, the full force of his personality that wanting to find out what was going on and created a legitimate investigation for those those 18 months he was involved with it um and so you, you look at his book the original version of this book it's a very very interesting book the only trouble is he took all the names out and so you had a hard time with the you know figuring out what the case is or figuring out who was involved in it and that, and that sort of thing but but with our access to the blue book files we can plug the names back into a lot of that stuff now um, but Ruppelt uh, made a really great case for there being something to this until the Air Force brought pressure to bear on him. 
Now, when I think of all of this, I I wonder, Blue Book, NASA, were these were these entities or projects done to give us the illusion that we're really looking into space and extraterrestrial life? Well, I think I think the original purpose of well, if if if, if we go back to the the government UFO files, we need to we need to. And, and, and in this book, I try to change UFO history a little bit, because I think that it's important that we look at the Foo Fighters, which, contrary to popular belief, were not just balls of light in the sky. And I, I read something just the other day that the Foo Fighters were identified as ball lightning. That's crap. Uh, you look at the Foo Fighters, there's an awful lot of cases where they see actual objects, solid objects, and they fire on these objects, and they see the, the rounds bouncing off and those sorts of things. So, so the Foo Fighters were important during World War II, and there was an investigation created to study the Foo Fighters because they thought they were enemy um, uh, aircraft, enemy enemy inventions, either Japanese or, or German. Uh, of course, the Japanese and German thought they were ours, but that's a whole other argument. Uh, when the war ended, that pressure was gone. But, but within six months, you've got the ghost rockets flying over Scandinavian. And again, you've got a massive investigation going on by the Swedish government. They, they, they limit the U.S. participation because they don't want to offend the Soviets, uh, diplomatically, you might say. But you've got that going on. And then in, in December of 1946, now remember, this is December of 1946, Arnold sees his uh, flying saucers in June of 1947. In December of 1946, there, the, uh, a group of intelligence officers at Wright field, right, Patterson Air Force Base now, were told to investigate these, these reports. And they were doing an unofficial investigation up to the point where Arnold saw his and it becomes a public, public interest, and suddenly their unofficial investigation becomes official. Now, there's something that, 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 that tacks all this together. One of the guys involved in the Foo Fighter investigation, a guy named Colonel Howard McCoy, he was involved at the highest levels of the Foo Fighter investigation in the 1940s, or 19, during World War II. 1946, we find out one of the guys who was involved with the investigation of the uh, ghost rockets and who's gathering information on the ghost rockets is a fellow named Colonel Howard McCoy. The guy who gets the phone call in December of 1946 and sets up this unofficial pro project is Colonel Howard McCoy. So you've got a guy who's involved in all of this stuff up to Arnold investigating flying saucers, Foo Fighters, Ghost Rockets, whatever name you put to them, but he's involved in it up until July of 1947. Now you get to the twining letter of, of September 1947 where he says, well, this is something real and not illusionary or fictitious. That letter, guy who drafted the letter for twining, Howard McCoy. So we've got somebody who was involved in this thing for literally years and years and years we tie it all together. The investigation's going on, and then we move into the arena where sign begins in 1947. But by the time they get to July of or to January of 1947, where Project Sign begins, they've realized that there is no imminent invasion. They realize that there is no immediate threat to national security. So they back. They 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 now take a step back from. What was imperative in the summer of 1947 is not so important in January of 1948. But, but um, that was the point where they decided that uh, there, there was no threat to national security. So they changed everything. 
And what's interesting about all of this now is when you look at the Project Blue Book files, you know, Sign evolved into Project Grudge, which evolved into Project Blue Book, so it all, all is connected. Right. McCoy had gathered an awful lot of documentation on sightings in Sweden, the ghost rockets, or Scandinavian, the ghost rockets. He had gathered disc sightings prior to Arnold, because, you know, the skeptics say, well, flying saucers are, are based on a misnomer. You know, uh, Arnold didn't see a saucer. He saw this other thing, and it was this motion and not the shape. And everybody sees flying saucers, so it proves that this, is, this doesn't work. But McCoy was gathering disc sightings prior to Arnold, and none of that material has made it into the Project Blue Book files. It went well. I know where it went. It went. It went. It's now buried under the golf course at Wright Patterson Air Force Base because they buried the files there. But but you look at all of that sort of thing, and you realize what's going on. So that by the time uh, you get to uh, Rupert coming into Project Blue Book, actually Project Grudge is where he started, coming in there, and he's there's there's really nothing going on. Nobody's doing any work. Nobody's doing really investigations. And he's asked by a general, "What's going on?" He says, "Basically nothing." He said, "Well, fix it." So he fixes it, and that goes on until the Robertson panel in January of 1953, and the Robertson panel says, yeah, there's nothing to it, forget it, and everything collapses at that point. It becomes, Project Blue Book becomes a public relations outfit as opposed to an investigative outfit. And the, the interesting about the um, Robertson panel, and again, it, all of the information is laid out in detail in, in government UFO secrets. You get to the Robertson panel, you learn that the final report after their, their meetings over five days and ending on a Friday night, uh, the next day, Robertson's got the final report written. He wrote it overnight, or was it prepared prior to the investigation? And if that's the case, then the Robertson panel means nothing as well. And that the part of the Robertson panel is we need to debunk flying saucers, create this illusion there's nothing to them, that it's not important to science, and move on to that so people will lose their interest in it. And that's and then Blue Book continues on until we get to the Condon Committee where they decide to get rid of um, Blue Book altogether. Even though the Air Force mission would have to be to investigate flying saucers, because if you've got something invading our airspace, it's the Air Force responsibility to identify it and either either knock it down, chase it out, or, or learn what's going on. That's their part of their mission. You know, and we have to take our one and only intermission, but, you know, as you said, from Project Sign, we went to Project Grudge, which was Project Blue Book, and I'm always wondering, this Bollander memo that stated, quote, reports of unidentified flying objects that could affect national security are not part of the Blue Book system. I want to get your answer when we come back. I also want to discuss precedents. You know, I want to know if they really know what's happening behind the scenes, and if a precedent when he asks to know that the nature and the truth about UFOs and extraterrestrial uh, influence here on planet Earth, and he's told, sorry, Mr. President, you don't have a need to know. Shouldn't the president fire that person immediately and, and perhaps summon the deputy and continue firing until he gets the answer? I want to get your answer on the other side. But how can people buy the new book and all your other books, The Government UFO Files, A Conspiracy of Cover-Up? They're uh, available on Amazon as either hard, hard copy books, <laughs> say hardback, hard, hard copy books or e-books. Um, they're in the various bookstores. The few that are left that have survived Amazon, but Amazon's got them all available as e-books. I think Barnes and Noble, if they're if they're still operating their website, probably 
shows my ignorance there. Uh, the e-books are there to be bought as well, or you can order them, order them from Barnes & Noble. So they're available in the bookstores, they're available through Amazon. Folks, don't go anywhere. So much more to discuss. We're going to learn so much more when we come back with former U.S. Army Colonel Kevin D. Randall. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy. Enjoy. 